0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock-Yuson, and today we're excited to be talking to Bob Quinn about his new book, co-author with Liz Carlisle, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Bob Quinn is an organic farmer near Big Sandy, Montana, and a leading green businessman. He served on the USDA's first National Organic Standards Board, and he's been awarded the Montana Organic Association's Lifetime of Service Award the Organic Trade Association's Organic Leadership Award, and Rodell Institute's Organic Pioneer Award. His numerous enterprises include the ancient grain business Kamut International and Montana's very first wind farm. Welcome to New Books, Bob.
1: Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. It's a great honor. Thank you.
0: And tell us a little bit more about yourself, and especially for New Book listeners from outside the U.S., where you are and what Big Sandy, Montana is like, just to position you a little better.
1: Well, okay, um, we are, I grew up on a wheat and cattle ranch. It was about 2,400 acres and um, started by my grandfather in 1920. So we just passed our 100th year anniversary mark last year. Um, now the farm is growing to about 3,400 acres. Um, we are located between a small isolated mountain range called the Bearspaw Mountains in north central Montana and the Missouri River um and the Missouri River breaks. So we had both pasture and farmland. Um pasture in areas that couldn't be farmed, it wasn't suitable for farming. That we'd um grazed cattle on that on the grasslands and um and then we um tilled and um grew mostly small grains on our uh, wheat and cattle ranch so with mostly winter wheat, spring wheat and barley while I was growing up. Um, we're about 12 and a half miles southeast of Big Sandy, which is had a population when I was growing up about 1,000. It's decreased around 600 now, uh-huh, along with many other small towns around America, especially in Montana. Uh, we're located in north-central Montana and not far, maybe 80 miles south of the Canadian border where Alberta meets um, Saskatchewan. So we're pretty close to um, the border on the north. Um, we are in a semi-arid um, prairie, a short grass prairie with uh, 12 to 14 inches of annual rainfall, uh, most of which comes in May and June. Uh, um, we have very cold winters down to, well, it used to be minus 40 below zero um, Fahrenheit or centigrade. It's the same. And um, it hasn't been quite that cold in the last few decades, but that's traditionally what we can expect. And we'll be over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit in the, um, early August, which is perfect weather for harvesting wheat anyway. So um, it's perfect area for, for wheat and other um, small grains. And um, we've been experimenting with lots of other crops, too, since we've been organic. I switched to organic agriculture about 30 years ago. So we've been organic in the last uh, 30 years. And within the next couple of years, we'll be organic as long as my father was chemical on our farm. Wow. Had,
0: what a milestone.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about that. It was, he used chemicals for about 35 years, and in a couple of years, we'll be 35 years without any chemicals. So that gives you a little bit of an overview, anyway, of uh, of what uh, where we're at and what we're doing.
0: Well, tell us a little more about the book. Why did you decide to write the book at this time? I mean, it's such a great story. Just to say that it's not only just a fascinating memoir about an American farmer and your really interesting story, but it gives this fantastic overview of the organic farming movement and um, the most critical times of its origins and also this dynamic period this last decade. But why did you decide to write it now?
1: Well, because I couldn't put all that into a sound bite. Or um, into a one-hour podcast, either, um, or uh, a presentation in a classroom. Um, it was just too much to tell, and, and I really wanted to put it in context. Um, some of my philosophies and what I've learned, put them in the context of how I learned them, so that I didn't want to just uh, be, you know, another preacher on the on the uh, um, sidewalk. Um, um uh, just um giving out a bunch of uh, platitudes, but actually um sharing my experiences and what I've learned and um maybe what we can do for solving some of the biggest challenges we have at this time in the future.
0: I know I think it's worth noting it's such a readable approachable book. I don't think you have to know anything about organic egg. I mean it just it's a really interesting story and it there's a really interesting history that you learn by the way of your stories. Which no, we'll dig but,
1: into a little bit. Well, I had a lot of help with my co author, uh, from my co author Liz Carlisle, with making it readable. Um, I tried to write a book for about five years, and after being rejected by one of my favorite um, book publishers, I decided to get some prof- more professional help. And uh, she was able to do in five months what I couldn't do in five years. And uh, I, I'm really happy the way it turned out, and we were a great team. I told her I didn't want a ghostwriter, I wanted a um, a partner in writing this book. And that's and that's how we worked together. And that's that was in, in what you'd see as the result.
0: Yes, yeah, she wrote that fantastic book, The Lentil Underground, about your neighbors to the South.
1: Yes, and that was why I became interested in her, um, because I saw the good job that she had done with that.
0: And yeah, it's still your voice. I mean, it's you telling the story, and it has a definite personality to it that has not been lost in the co-authoring. Yes, we-
1: she is real, um, talented in in pulling that off.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about your early experience with farming. And you, as you said, you grew up with chemical farming. Your dad was an early adopter in your community, but what was it like being in a rural farming community at that time? Cause you, it's been through some pretty dynamic changes.
1: Well, of course, growing up, I thought it was great fun. We had, you know, um, a community that was alive and well, and we had country dances in the summer and uh, community picnics in, uh, on the holidays, on the 4th of July or Memorial Day or Father's Day, that sort of thing, uh, along the river um, or in the mountains. And um, um, we we um, did a lot of activities with our neighbors and uh, we worked together, exchanged machinery, worked together on certain types of, of harvesting or haying Together, branding together. Um, So there's a lot of community involvement. They're really involved with the small town of Big Sandy. I was involved in all kinds of school activities and um, music and band and speech and athletics and science clubs. And uh, it just gave us, uh, and when you're in a small school, you get a chance to really do everything. You don't have to be um, at the top of your class uh, to be picked, you know, 20 out of a thousand or something. Our class was 40. So almost everybody was needed for almost everything, uh, at some level, and that um, made for a really a, re- a well-rounded education, I thought, and a great experience growing up.
0: And then the, the the point that you make too about farming is worth noting because there's so many fewer people involved in agriculture and the the impact that has on communities because once a f- you know, farmers, farms get bigger and you have less people farming. You have less people in the community. You have lonely mm-hmm. farmers, in a sense, and not enough kids to fill a school. And, I mean, it really dynamically changes what a town can actually feel like as a community.
1: That's really true. I mean, our community now in the last 50 years has gone from a 1,000 to 600. We've lost probably half of our main street businesses and and uh, almost half of my neighbors are gone. Um very few encourage their sons or daughters to return to the farm because they say there's no economic future in farming. Um, and for many of them, that turned out to be true in the case. And so um, they disappeared, and, and, and the ones that are left um, are, are further apart and uh, uh, have bigger machinery and, and really don't um, neighbor as much together, I don't think, uh, that we saw them when I was growing up.
0: Yeah, I think that's a part about the change in farming that hasn't really been talked about much, what it has on no, the community level.
1: That's really true. It's, a, it's really the result of the, the, on, what do you say, the other side of the coin of industrial agriculture. So industrial agriculture has accomplished uh, two fantastic uh, goals, and that was uh, providing abundant food and cheap food. But on the other side of that coin, there's a very high cost for this cheap food. And one of them is the loss of the farmers themselves um, without the government programs. Most of them couldn't even survive. And, and most of the money that they're given goes to chemical companies that are providing expensive inputs for their farms. So it's really um, a never ending cycle of, um, uh, of exchange, of flow of money in from the government and out of state for the, for the uh, big chemical companies. Um, We have uh, also because the farmers are disappearing, then the communities that supported those farms are disappearing. And um, it's just a a, kind of a vicious cycle. And the schools, of course, um, if you don't have enough kids to run the school, the schools decline until sometimes many small towns have lost their schools altogether, or had to consolidate with nearby towns. So that that is just a kind of a never ending cycle once you start down that path. And I I felt like there's a better way. So that's, and that's why I was trying to explain my book it's not really hopeless it's just needs to, we need to go in a different direction because the other high cost then of um, cheap food is certainly the degradation of our environment with chemical pollutions we have we have roundup in the rain now um, it contaminates waterways and and ground groundwater and uh, soil um, we have dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico as big as New Jersey that um, as a result of chemical runoff we have all that has contributed to a health crisis in America where 60% now of our entire population has at least one chronic disease. The CDC says that most of that's due um, from poor diets. So we may have abundance of food, the quality of that food and the nutritional value of that food has greatly declined. So we don't have the quality we once had, but we have we have abundance, but we don't have quality and it's leading to quite a deficit in our, um, in our health.
0: Speaking about the, you know, you have a really powerful position to speak from and can you say a little bit more about your early experience when you decided you have this really creative mind of a researcher and you decided to go into academia and then you when you went into grad school you saw this early rise of um, the chemical companies and their relationship with academia can you say a little bit more about it's an interesting position to have been in um In academia at that time, especially there's a story in the book you tell is very beautiful about the peach story. It's really memorable and moving.
1: Well, you know, that comes from when you have industrial agriculture. Very few of my neighbors now have time for gardens, in fact, and raising their own food. So we don't eat what we grow anymore. We're growing commodities. I think this is the biggest. That's a, a big downfall of the industrial mentality. We don't grow food anymore and we don't think of it as food. We think of it as commodities, which are bought and sold. And, um, and that's, it's one thing to, to buy and sell wheat as a commodity, but, um, when you buy and sell and you raise and, and, uh, harvest and ship and pedal peaches, something like a, a fruit, like a peach, that's was my biggest, um, wake up, um, call it. And the first time that I ever questioned the whole industrial egg, um, um process that we're involved with. So I was in, um, UC Davis and in the middle of California. And uh, we were on some field trips because I loved to see what the agriculture in California was like. And we went to a peach orchard and um, the peaches on the trees looked uh, beautifully ripe, um, but you couldn't smell anything. You couldn't smell any aromas. And um, I was used to, um, when we were in Davis, we'd go out to the peach orchard to get peaches to can. And the farmer would say to us, well, do you expect to can today or tomorrow? And he would point us in the direction of the pile or the boxes of, uh, of peaches that were either ready to can that day; they were so ripe, or would stand another day and be ready to can tomorrow. When we were in Montana, we would receive our peaches in boxes that were double wrapped, and and they were picked close enough to um, ripeness that they would finish ripening on the on the countertop, and um, and they were delicious. Um, as as time went on, when I moved back after. In the, in the 80s, uh, late, late 70s, early 80s, our uh, peaches never no came that way. And a lot of times they would um, uh, go bad in the center before they ripened. They never, never gained the Roman flavors that I was used to as a kid or who I saw fresh off the tree in California. But when we went to this big commercial um, peach orchard that was shipping across the country, they weren't double wrapping anymore either. They were spraying their trees with uh, some um, petrochemical compound that they had discovered would turn the peaches this beautiful blush that looked like a ripe peach, but they were green. They were still green. So that's why there was no aroma. And when you taste them, they tasted terrible. Um, There's no flavor either. But they did not bruise. And you could bump them in a big, you could dump them in a big um, mm-hmm. a container and ship them across the country and they wouldn't bruise. They would still look beautiful in the store and that's what people would buy and take home. Um, I tell my friends, you know they're mostly they're, the best thing they're good for is taking pictures and putting on your wall. Because they're so beautiful to look at, but they're not uh, good to eat. <laughs> Which used to be why we bought food—not to be, um, you know, uh, picture perfect. That food doesn't need to be picture perfect. It's more important that it's uh, has great flavors and great aromas, um, and that's uh, that's been lost. And 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 when um, when when I discovered how they were doing playing this trick on people, essentially, um, and able to um, industrialize. Um, their uh peach operation i was i was very very disturbed and disgusted with that and then i started thinking about all the other aspects of industrial life i never really thought of before and it started me on a road of questioning really what are we doing this is even before i had any idea about the health aspects of it it was just um uh, common um providing good good tasting food that's that's what kind of was a wake-up call for me
0: yeah, you say you talk about the idea of our sensory intelligence and the betrayal that that farming was having on our own just innate human ability to sense and as living organisms ourselves. And I thought that was really moving. This sense of being betrayed and, and losing our you know our human qualities of our our sensory intelligence.
1: <laughs> well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a um, deliberate betrayal. That's not. That, I, I think that, that was more of a unintended consequence, but it it doesn't make it any less real um, uh, as an end end result, but it certainly wasn't done on purpose. The the, uh, industrialization was to make everything more convenient, more efficient, more um, cheaper. And of course, the the people pulling all the strings were making more money than anybody else, but the the theory was the farmers would also uh, have an easier time to make uh more money too but the trouble is that most of that required higher inputs and more expenses that ate up most of those extra profits that came with a better efficiency
0: so something you're so good at in the book and what you just sort of demonstrate now what you're you're talking is your ability to um understand um organic farming and conventional farming in your in your career how you've kind of been involved in both worlds which i think is a is a challenging thing and a lot of people don't navigate it and end up becoming polarized or polarizing the issue of food systems. And yet you've had this interesting ability to have sort of feed in both worlds, you know, to be on the USDA advisory committee, but live in a community that's mostly not, you know, using organic agriculture. And it's, it's a really wonderful quality that you have brought to your experience. wonder how you, how comfortable that is or if you felt like an outsider in your,
1: well in your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of my neighbors always thought I was crazy, anyway. And uh, but I look at all my friends and neighbors that are um, chemical farmers as future organic farmers. So I'm not interested in in creating any animosity or polarization because these are my neighbors and my friends, and uh, and we get along. Some things we don't talk about detail. Um, but and if, but as for the future, I see them as um, future organic um, farmers, and and that's. And, and, and I look at all my friends who are eating um, you know, uh, the industrial food at McDonald's or whatnot as future um, eaters of organic and, uh, and, and more healthy foods. So that um, the whole thing has to come together. We need to work together more and be kinder to each other. I think, I think that what's happening now generally is just uh, awful. And uh, we need to really back up and, and take uh, really stock and the polarization that's everywhere, and um,
0: and reject that,
1: and and go back to treating each other as as brothers and sisters and neighbors that we actually are.
0: Yeah, we need to be kinder to each other. That's worth. Yeah, reading. I
1: think so. And that's not so hard, but it would make a big difference.
0: <laughs> well put. So you went back to your farm, your family farm. You left academia and you started growing, experimenting with organic and. is a beautiful part of the book too that makes it so exciting to read is you you have this really creative mind and also a researcher sensibility so you get a crazy idea you try it it works and then you do it and it's it's really interesting can you talk about the very beginning of that when you went back and said and did your first organic test on the farm and
1: well i um so as I, i said earlier i wasn't born organic i was raised chemical actually and that's all i knew and i I had had a couple of experiences that started me questioning this, the, the, uh, the chemical industrial complex and, and, and their control of everything. But I didn't really have any, um, I hadn't studied organic and I had no understanding of that. Um, I didn't really believe in it. I, I thought um, it was really almost diametrically opposed of everything I'd been taught for years and for decades. And um, I started, um, when I got back to the farm, it was still 2,400 acres at that time, and it was a place big enough for one family in the in the late 70s and early 80s, but it wasn't big enough for two, and we now my parents were still on the farm, so I was farming with my dad, and um, it wasn't really big enough to support two families full-time year-round. We always had hired some hired help in the summer to help with the seeding and the harvesting and whatnot, but we didn't have full-time um, help. All year round. And now we did. I mean, I was I was a full-time help year round. Um, so I was trying to figure out how we could increase the value of what we grew. And um, you can either do that or you can buy off the neighbors, which I wasn't interested in doing that. We didn't have any money to do that anyway. But I liked my neighbors. I didn't want to see them gone. Um, so I wasn't interested in that path. And I tried a few things that didn't work. And then I, I, I uh, met up with a a fourth cousin of mine who lived in Southern California who really didn't have a job at that time and was looking for something to do. And I said, well, why don't you see if you can sell my wheat and just whole grain bakers in Southern California. And and he found one, um, Food for Life, in, in um, Orange County or nearby Orange County that really uh, was the beginning of a brand new world for me in the business. And we started shipping a truckload a week um, to them and they took our grain. And when we didn't have the quality they needed, I found another grain that met, met their needs. And so we started a business. Um, that was in 1983. And the next year in 84, um, the owner's name was Jim Torres. And so he called up one day and he said, Hey, Bob, he says, you think you could find some organic grain, the same kind of quality of this wheat you've been sending us? And I said, Oh, sure. Yeah. Don't, no problem. Now yeah, I'll have it down to you in a week or two. And I hung up the phone. I thought, Oh my gosh. Um, I don't even know any organic farmers. I said. I thought to myself. In fact, I don't even believe in this organic stuff. <laughs> but I, I didn't let my prejudices stand in the way of um, filling the needs of our customers, and this was our main customer, our most important one. So I started calling around, and within a couple of days, I found a couple of organic farmers in northeast corner of Montana, about 300 miles from me. And I went up with my truck and filled up the truck with grain and. They filled out a little affidavit saying it was organic, and that's how it worked in those days. It was a self-declaration. Um, but I had a little paperwork that could verify that. And uh, I shipped it off to Jim. He said, that's great. He says, I'll take another load and another and another. And pretty soon, I was um, I, I was in the organic business. Um, it started quite small, but more and more uh, became a higher and higher percent of our business. And I started meeting more organic farmers. There weren't very many, probably handful there probably weren't less more than oh I don't know four or five in the whole state but they would get together and invite me to their um and their winter meetings that they kind of um, put together and talking about um, conversions organic and how it worked and I was quite intrigued about um what they had to say um I was used to going to mainline farm organizations which talked about Mostly, well, how can we how can we survive on government payments? And what are we going to do about the terrible prices in the marketplace? And on and on. And I was just gloom and doom and woe is me. And and um, at these organic meetings, however, it was completely different attitude. They were all upbeat. They were getting good prices and good premiums for what they grew. They're they were excited about what was happening in their fields. They could walk across their fields and they felt they could feel the difference of the soil under their feet they were growing their own fertilizer and in, in, in a form of uh, legumes and cover crops. Um, I was very fascinated by this. And um, so I decided at that point that I wanted to try some of my own farm. That took a couple of years. So the first experiment actually started in, um, in 86. So that was a couple of years of thinking about it and listening and going to the face. But we'd start with 20 acres, which is about 1% of, of our farm and, um, it would have been an alfalfa we worked that up and planted uh, winter wheat and right next to that was a chemical field and so we had a side-by-side comparison and um uh, most of my neighbors thought it was uh, I, I was crazy and uh but what happened at harvest time the crops were almost identical in yield um the proteins were almost identical and my dad was just astounded here. Every, every year he had been spending tens of thousands of dollars on fertilizers and, and um, herbicides and other chemical inputs. And this young whippersnapper of a son had come back from school in California, had done the same thing as, as he had done in quality and in quantity uh, with no inputs like that, only um, using the benefit of the, of the alfalfa that he'd been growing for a few years for hay um, so I was really excited. I, I, from that, ex, um, positive outcome, I, I tried to convince him to, to, um, change half the farm to organic the next year. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't too excited about that, but he did let me, um, uh, I think we started with maybe 25, 20, percent that's the following year, 25%, maybe. And so he was at least supportive of, of watching how it would do. And that was our beginning, and uh, the second year was also a great success, and we just went on from there. By, by 1988, I was convinced that uh, this was the future and the way to go, and I stopped all of our chemical use on entire farm. It wasn't really a, a, a very smooth transition, but I was so anxious to uh, start figuring out how to um, grow our crops organically that I just dove right into it.
0: And that was the really early days, the early 80s, with natural food brands like Food for Life. That was really... At the beginning of a consumer-driven move, I think to organic,
1: it was. It was in the very beginning of the of the commercialization and, and organic really showing up in the marketplace around the country.
0: And that you bring up the interesting point about then there um, organic growing was sort of there's a trust level there with um, affidavits and paperwork, but yeah. a very different system than we have today with the USDA, which. Actually, it's worth saying a little bit about that because you were involved in the early, um, the development of the first USDA work to have a national standard for organic. Do you want to say anything about that? I know it's well, a long, uh, complicated story, but <laughs> yeah. for the sake of people that might not understand, I think the evolution and where and the complexity or the intelligence that went into it from the grassroots organic community.
1: Well, there was a significant number of us who really didn't want to get involved with the government with this at all. Um, But what was happening, um, California had a state law and a state label that was becoming more and more a a national standard. Um, Meanwhile, other states had passed their own laws and their own definition of organic, and not all of them were the same. So you had some states that required two years uh, conversion, some states required three, um, some allowed... uh, Inputs that others didn't allow. Um, And so anyway, you had a real hodgepodge. Some states had no definitions. Well, maybe a significant number had no definitions and no programs. And so you could sell in those states whatever you wanted to as organic. And there was a big... So we had a fear of the government for one thing. Um, But there was a bigger fear, I think, um, within the industry that, that organic would go the way natural had gone. And because natural could mean anything, it ended up meaning nothing. Um, And we didn't want that to happen organic. So a a fairly significant core of folks got together and made a petition to government to establish a a definition for organic and a a program of certification. Because there were certification bodies too. There was uh, some run by state governments. Some were um, independent and uh, private certifications, and they all had different. Rules and regulations for the certification too, so that was another, um, and they're always bickering one against the other, um, saying that they were better. You know, one was better than the other, but in reality, that also provided a nice um, kind of a friendly competition, which was spurred the evolution of what organic was and the um, creativity of making it even better and better, because every certification body was really um anxious to help have the best type of organic there was and so people would would um there was a lot of incentive to figure out how to do more with less um with less inputs and with more growing your own inputs or or uh, less and less chemical inputs there are always a few that were kind of accepted as as a necessity but as time went on the, those became fewer and fewer as as um Research or experimentation, a lot of it on-farm stuff, showed that um, we could live without them. Um, so that was that was going on too. But the greater fear, as I mentioned, was the uh, confusion. So we went to the government uh, and they passed the National Organic Standards Act. Um, for the, and it, that was National Organic Standards Program, National Organic Program, (NOP), And um, I was one of the first um, members of the... Advisory board, NOSB was the National Gang Standards Board, which um, advised the Secretary of Agriculture of how to put the program together. So that's how it started. Um, uh, There's been it's been fairly successful. One thing that we didn't anticipate that the the rule became um, not only us we wanted the floor on on the on what organic was defined, but we ended up with a floor and a ceiling both, which which uh, didn't allow kind of the evolution of what organic was. And so it, it, I think it hindered us a little bit that way. And the floor has become kind of eroded in some areas. And um, the USDA has not been very cooperative in in um, putting into place many of the recommendations of the NOSB. So this has been a big rub. And in the meantime, they've allowed some, industrialization of organic, which is a big concern, such as um, confined animal operations, which was never part of the original idea. Um, there's a big debate about uh, organic hydroponic because you're growing food without um, soil. To me, it's not really a farm. It's more like a, a factory. It's more like a um, uh, industrialization of, of it. I think it and certainly it's better than um, Using chemicals, but it shouldn't be on the same. It should be labeled, and so that at least that there's, uh, it's not looked at as the same in the marketplace. as the same as to a traditional uh, organic farm. So there's been a, there needs to be some really some tweaking with that. But um, we are also in a world market, and so we have a little pressure coming from our friends overseas, especially in Europe, and um, they are in many ways, a little more um, strict on what organic is. And that influences our markets and what we do here a little bit too. So I'm hopeful that that might push things also in in a good direction.
0: So beyond the standards, one thing you talk about is the, the commodity mindset and the changing the way we think about food and how food is produced. And can you say... I think commodity is something that's a little bit misunderstood. And I and it's really interesting how you talk about the impacts it has, how how we even think about a farm system or a community. Can you say a little bit about that, you know, the commodity mindset and the changing of that towards um, more of an organic or regenerative or ecological way of thinking? Because you embody that so much in what you've been doing in the last few decades.
1: Well, uh... Yes, thank you. I mean, like the commodity mentality goes hand in hand with industrial mentality. And um, when you separate the farm uh, from food production and only talk about commoditization of it and raising commodities, you have a different way of what you're, you think how you think about the food. Um, when you're raising commodities, there's not normally much discussion of quality, other than you know basic standards of um, Oh, weight of the grain, for example, um, the size of it, if it's uniform, if it's um, the color is okay, if it's free of disease, that sort of thing. But what's been lost is nutrition. Uh, One thing we're not, nutrition isn't measured. And so there's no way to to pay for that. Um, And so people don't care about it because they're not getting paid for. I mean, in in the commodity market, it's not a part of the commodity market at all. It's very much a part of the um, health food market and uh regenerative organic is one of the uh main what um bragging points is that the food tastes better and um it, it it tastes better too if it's fresher and it's more local i mean that's another um aspect of it that really helps um and that's kind of going again in the opposite direction of the commodity market of centralization and um uh shipping food clear back and forth across borders and that sort of stuff, rather than trying to produce more local, uh, locally and fresher of what you uh, raise and pick. Um, but what we need to do to drive to diminish the importance of commodities and increase the importance of, of nutrition in food is have a way to easily measure it and label it so that the, um, the eater, the buyers, when they go to the store, can actually see on the labels what they're getting um, and have a, a little preview of what they're going to be able to taste and experience when they take it home. Um, if you're able to do that, then people would have a good reason to pay more and the farmers then should be able to have be the recipient of that extra bonus, those premiums, which would encourage them to focus more on um, high-quality, nutritious food production rather than commodity production.
0: So let's talk about Kamut. This is okay. <laughs> Cause that is such an interesting thing. And a lot of people listening have probably eaten kamut and don't and you are actually the person that's really helped bring Kamut into our food system. So what is what is Kamut? Um, and tell us a little bit about the interesting story about how it became came to be part of our food again.
1: Well, Kamut is a, a trademark. Um, so it's not the name of the grain or anything other than a marketing tool to give the customer a guarantee that when they see this trademark, the Kamut trademark, they know that they're eating or buying a, an ancient grain. that's never been, um, muckied with genetically. Um, it's all organic. It's guaranteed to be organically grown. So they don't have to worry about any kind of um, residual, um, chemicals, uh, pesticides or herbicides in their, in their food. Um, it's, uh, high nutrition a high protein and high in minerals. And from our research now, we understand that it's, it's extremely high in antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. So it's a perfect um, solution for the, the today's chronic disease because all chronic disease is linked with inflammation. But um, we didn't know any of that when I first saw it when I was a teenager at the county fair, an old fellow, probably was younger than I am now, but he looked pretty old to me. Uh, at the time, was passing out handfuls of this stuff out of a an old red Folgers coffee can. And uh, said to me, as I walked by, I said, hey, Sonny, is it, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? And I said, oh, well, hmm, sure. And I walked over and he poured this giant grain. It's about three times the size of a regular wheat kernel into my hand. and um, And the story was that this grain had come out of the tombs in Egypt. And it was a great story. Everybody loved it. And I had, I'd heard about it in the county, but I hadn't seen it before. The um, airman that uh, was in the air force station in Portugal, that first sent it to Montana. I went to a bar one night and the guy next to him said, look what I got out of a tomb in Egypt. He'd been on furlough to Egypt and uh, who knows where he really got it, but that's what he was telling. Um, he probably got it off the off the Cairo market and someone told him it came out of a, a tomb, but Anyway, he gave him a, a few kernels, and this uh, airman from Montana sent it back to his father It was in our county, in Shoto County, and he planned it, and it grew, which should have been a clue right there. It didn't come from a tomb sitting for 4,000 years because uh, nothing lives that long as a seed, um, even in a tomb and a pyramid or anything. Um, anyway, it grew, and and uh, he kept multiplying it and growing it year after year. This is about 1950 or so when this started. And by after five or six or seven years, he had about, had several thousand bushel. Um, but he didn't have any markets for it. And so he passed around as novelty. Some people just grew it for fun. It was tall, had these big heads on it and these giant kernels. And it tasted good, but mostly it was just a novelty of seeing it grow. And I was, um, I saw it. I don't know what I did with It was, you know, it was just interesting. But and I didn't think anything more about it until oh, probably 14 years later. <laughs> I was in graduate school at UC Davis and eating a package of corn nuts one day. And uh, in the back in the package in those days said corn nuts made with a giant corn. And the corn nuts people were just down the road from me, um, not very far in Oakland. Um, and I was in Davis. And uh, and when I read that, the thought immediately came to me, a oh, giant corn. I said, I wonder if they'd be interested in giant wheat. Because I thought of that old giant wheat that I'd seen in my junior high days. So I called up my dad and I said, dad, you know, if we can see if you can, see if you can find some of that old giant, the king touch of wheat. About a week later, he called back and sent said, well, he found a, a pint bottle, a pint jar, about two thirds full, a little over a cup, grain, a few heads in it. He sent me a couple of tablespoons and I sent that to Corn Nuts and they cooked it up and I, a couple of weeks they called or I called them and I said, well, what'd you think? And I said, yeah, this is fantastic. We'll take 10,000 pounds right now. And I said, well, I don't really have 10,000 pounds. I didn't want to tell him I only had a cup full, but I said, if you'll give me a couple of years, I said, I'll grow up enough so that you can have whatever you want. And so I called my dad and I said, dad, plant that all in the garden right now. And luckily it was spring and they did, and it grew and we harvested it by hand or he did. And we sent it to California. And I made contact with some folks there who grew it over the winter. So we were able to grow two crops a year. And in about three or four years, um, we had about 50 pounds. Uh, probably maybe three years. I had moved back to the farm by that time and I called up my friends at Corn Nuts and the guy I talked to was gone and no one knew about the project. No one cared about the project. No one was interested in anything like that and so I just put it in the shed and there it sat until mm, 76, I guess, three or four more years till we went to our first, um, uh, or 86, I mean, we went to our first food show in Anaheim, California, the Expo West in 86 and um That was our first booth that we had there. We had one ever since. Um, It's our best opportunity for marketing and meeting potential customers. And my folks went with me. My dad took a jar of this grain because he he thought that would be a a nice thing to show. I was more interested in selling stone ground whole wheat flour from our flour mill that had expanded from our wheat business. I started in 83. Now we're three years down the road and we're getting ready to add a flour mill to it. And uh, my dad showed this grain to um, everybody that walked by. And one person, one person out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in three days showed an interest. And because of that one person, it was from, um, uh, had started a small store in San Diego called Goldmine. And uh, it was a a macrobiotic store. And they were looking for ancient grains or primitive grains uh, that they could sell as whole grain. And so we, because of that interest, we planted all 50 pounds on about a half acre in 86. And then- 30 years later, we were contracting with several hundred organic farmers in Montana, Alberta and Saskatchewan, and planting almost 100,000 acres. So it was an amazing um, ride uh, that we never ever expected. And just uh, all the qualities that we we um, started researching and, and discovered then were the reason, but the biggest thing, the biggest driver was the way it tastes and the, and the aromas it has while it's cooking and how people felt after they ate it. So that was um, kind of a, a nutshell of how it started. And and now most of what we grow is shipped to Italy, 75% of everything we grow goes to Italy and they make, oh, probably 3000 different products there. And the rest of the world combined, uh, the other 25% goes to the rest of the world combined and they probably have several hundred products um, in that. 90% of all the products that are made out of uh, food brand wheat are made in Italy, so they think it's it's very close relative of Durham, and uh, mm. so which is for pasta. And that's and, semel-
0: what semolina is made from, right? For most yeah. pastas.
1: Yes, that's right. And so that's very popular in Italy, and and it makes a wonderful tasting pasta. And they just felt like it's a grain they once had and lost, and now they have it again, and they just latched onto it. So that was a big, big surprise to us also.
0: Something you mentioned in the book, which I think is interesting. flowers gotten whole grain flour gotten better in the US in particular, but in the early days, and I somewhat remember this from my childhood too, like uh, wheat had been hybridized to have a very big, big brand so that when it was made into white flour, it sifted out easily. And so then when you went when there were the early days of a whole wheat flour, it was very, I don't know, for lack of a better word, weedy. It was not as pleasant as, you know, what kamut tastes tastes like or what other, you know,
1: well,
0: grain or heirloom grains taste like. Can you say a little more about that? I think it's an important point because yeah. there's a lingering attitude around whole grains that...
1: Yes, well, the brand uh, was bred to be harder, not bigger, but harder, so it could flake off easier when you make white flour. And if it was harder, it would flake off and leave more of the endosperm or the white portion of the kernel, um, the interior portion, um, to to then be turned into white flour. And, um, but when you had, when you start adding that brand back, um, depending on how it was ground, um, you could um, feel the, the sharpness of those, it was like broken glass, I mean, to be extreme into adding that back to your flour. And in pasta, particularly in those early days, in the 80s, when they added that um, whole wheat back to semolina, um, you could feel a scratchiness in your throat eating that pasta, that whole wheat pasta. And it wasn't too pleasant. Um, The uh, brand around the ancient grains, like the Kamut brand wheat, uh, was quite soft compared, relatively soft. And so the texture was very, very smooth. And you didn't have that sensation of scratchiness from hard bran. So that was... um, Made the um, whole wheat even more more pleasant to eat because at that point, well, even now, very small percent of of wheat eaten in America is whole wheat. It's mostly white flour, where you've lost a third of the minerals or a third of the nutrition. You've thrown away a third of the plant, a third of the crop, a third of the grain, and you're losing a lot of nutrition and vitamins and minerals that you should have, and the fiber uh, for your keeping your digestion system healthy and and regular. So.
0: The commodity mindset that you—that's a good.
1: Well, yeah, and it was, of course, driven by the demand for white flour because that was kind of the the uh, food of the the royalty and nobility in Europe, and that kind of came across from there. And um, once the uh, steel mill was and rotor mill was invented, you could easily make white flour. Um, Then it just took off. And it, the nutritional disaster that was so um, apparent that a significant number of the, uh, phys- of the men going into World War II couldn't pass their physicals anymore. And, and the government really became alarmed at this. And uh, that's uh, where the uh, requirement for fortification became uh, common. So white flour is now fortified. <clears throat> they tried to add back the um, vitamins and some minerals that were lost. But it's never, it's never the same as eating whole wheat in the first place.
0: We'd like to say a little more about Kamut because you've really um, done a lot of work over the years, to continuing to understand its origins, but then also the research you've been doing more recently. And I think it's such a big topic in food right now around sensitivities to what is often thought of as you know just wheat or is it gluten? And I think there's some interesting yeah. knowledge that's been... Brought to that topic based on your research with Kamut, which is a wheat and has gluten, but has mm-hmm. different properties. So it would be great to hear a little more about that experiment.
1: Well, we had no idea, as, I'm not, as I first said when I first started with it, <clears throat> what all it would do. My dad was um, – a friend of ours in California had it made into pasta. So my dad was giving away these, all these pasta samples, and he gave a, a, some to a friend of ours in, in a nearby town – and have her that had all kinds of wheat sensitivities. She couldn't eat. She couldn't. She couldn't even have Harley wheat in the same room with her. But she did some kinesiology muscle testing with it, and she thought maybe she could eat it. And she did eat it. And um, uh, I kind of jumped on my dad a little bit. I said, "Dan, why'd you give that to her? You know she can't eat any of this stuff. And he said, well, it's organic, isn't it? And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, she's more converted than I am <laughs> after, uh, you know, starting the other way around. But um, anyway, she called up in a day or two later and she said, what is this stuff? She said, when I eat it, it makes me feel better. I said, whoa, that was a big surprise. I said, well, we'll give you some more. And, and a few weeks later, she said, you know, I have a sister that can't eat wheat and has many other problems with food sensitivities. You think we could get her some? I said, oh, sure, we'll send her a box full. And when her sister had eaten this for four or five weeks, she let us know that not only could she eat it when she couldn't eat normal wheat or regular wheat. But after eating it for for several weeks, she was less sensitive to some of the problem foods that she'd had, uh, or some of the foods she had problems with previously. And that was, when when I heard that, that was it. I, then we changed, um, I changed my entire perception of what this grain was. It, up to that point, it was still kind of a novelty and we were doing the King Tut story and all this stuff. Uh, you know, it, it tasted good, we had that, but when it was a health, Benefit, and particularly when people could eat it who couldn't eat other kinds of wheat, that really um, kind of ignited my scientific um, inquiry, inquiring mind, and I was determined that if we could figure this, why figure out why this was the case? I couldn't find anybody really in America who believed that there was a problem with with wheat in the first place. In those days, most of the scientists felt that. If you couldn't eat wheat, it's probably just in your head. You know, it's just one of the fad things that are going around. Um, And in fact, I had one of them tell me, he said, you know, if I did the kind of research you're asking me to do comparing modern wheat and your ancient grain, so-called ancient grain, he said, I would be wasting my time and your money. And I thought, oh boy, that's not very encouraging. (laughs) So we found um, some very interested people in Italy where if they can't eat wheat, that's a real serious problem problem for them. They don't just run down and look for wheat-free, gluten-free, which there wasn't any at that time anyway. They wanted to know why they couldn't eat this wheat and, and how to fix it. And so we teamed up with a, a couple labs in the University of Bologna. And then later on, after we um, discovered it was anti-inflammatory and the link between that and chronic disease, we linked up with a couple of labs in the University of Florence and their medical research hospital. And after about 15 years of pouring a lot of money into this uh, project. We probably spent almost $2 million in in supporting research projects over 15 years. We have 35 peer-reviewed journal articles to to, um, show for it. And so these are not just self-publications that, you know, uh, dictated by some commercial venture. These are independent um, laboratories that are doing their own research in a very um, correct way. And they're peer-reviewed, meaning they're scrutinized by their peers before it goes into publication and they're published in some of the most reputable journals in the world. And um, we found all kinds of differences between um, modern wheat and this ancient crane that we were selling on the Kamut brand. Um, and we were in the, in the later years, probably the last half of those eight years or so, we were focusing on human clinical trials uh, using or uh, studying people with chronic diseases like heart disease and irritable bowel syndrome, um, fibromyalgia, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, um, diabetes, those kinds of things. And the answers came back all the same. It was very, very consistent that the modern wheat caused inflammation and in many cases added to um, the problem of the, of, the, of the disease that they had. Uh, while the ancient grain mediated, it didn't it didn't cure it, but it mediated reduces the, the severity of the of the disease, and uh, was mostly probably through this anti inflammatory action. So that was a big big surprise to us, and um, it, it it really led to a complete change in how I look at food and how I look at um and growing food and farming. Um, it's
0: such a wonderful grain i've been baking with it for many years like it's just so lovely for cakes and breads and it has a lovely flavor beautiful color i mean it's a lovely yeah, it's,
1: quite, you know, it's quite golden it's got a lot of Imani in it so it's it's, it's quite golden and that the uh, the um brand is not dark red like our bread wheats are so as the as a whole grain it's quite light and, and and yellowish um colored in in your final products and it and like you say it tastes good i'm glad you enjoy it thank you <laughs> And that's, and that's what, why people buy the second, you know, the second bag of flour. Um, they buy the first bag with all kinds of different reasons, but they go back most of them because of the way it tastes. It's not so easy to work with, and you probably have your own stories to tell how you've perfected different recipes, but um, people who really stick with it and have some artisan talents or determination to make it work can make almost anything out of this grain that you can make with wheat. And, um successfully it's not it's not really we haven't it's not the, the manufacturing the the industrialization of of um, like bread making and whatnot isn't really suited the sudden isn't really suited for that because it doesn't uh, machine well in in, in in all the settings that we use for the bread that's for the wheat that's been bred for that kind of um, manufacturing but you can make it work and it's a it's a very healthy and nutritious product when it's finished.
0: Yeah, it's not that fussy, and there's lots of really experienced bakers who are sharing ideas for it, how to make how to optimize it and bread. So you don't just grow wheat; you have some really interesting other projects happening on your farm. I'd love to just before we run out of time touch on your dry farm experiment because I think there's something you've learned and going back to the idea of a farm actually growing its own food. You experiment with dry farming on your farm, which is probably going to become much more important, especially with. The issues we're facing with climate change, and can you say a little bit more about that experiment and how it's evolved?
1: Um, our whole farm is dry farm.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there's, first, there's, we no, there's that.
1: <laughs> we have no possibility for irrigation. The groundwater is all full of salt and it would be ruin the ground if we pumped it up on the ground. We're too far from the rivers uh, to pump from there and um, uh, put on our soil. So we. That's why most people just grow small grains because you know. Need that for wheat or barley or oats, that sort of stuff. Um, in our area, we have rain in the spring, and that's enough to to make a crop um, to harvest in the midsummer. But what a lot of people don't think about and is growing vegetables in dry land. Um, the homesteaders did it when they first came, and no one remembers that now. But I was curious to how much we could really grow dry land, uh, how many vegetables we could grow dry land. And I started out with um, potatoes and with storage vegetables like the potatoes and winter squash and onions. Because I thought, you know, that's another problem. We have a place like Montana where you don't grow these vegetables, you don't grow vegetables, you don't have any processing facilities either. So if we would just start with um, vegetables that don't need processing, they, but could be stored easily like potatoes in a root cellar and um, squash and onions just in your garage or, you know, a dry, cooler place, but dry, not a root cellar. Um, there would be a place to start. And that's what we started. And I was quite amazed that um, the plants, uh, if you space the plants out, we give the plants about three times more space than, um, uh, than it'd be planted in your garden or in an irrigated field, or what they would plant in the Midwest where they get enough rain that they don't need to irrigate. Um, they get about three times more rain than we do. Um, theirs is in the, ours is in the teens, and theirs in the high 40s. Uh, for inches per year. And if I had thought about that, I could have cut short a lot of my research experiments and just went right to the three to one um, ratio of expanding the, or uh, diminishing the plant population uh, compared to um, uh, irrigated fields. But what I found is that if I gave each plant three times more space than what they normally got um, in those uh, high water areas, that each plant produced just about the same amount of production as an irrigated plant which was astounding to me and i we experimented with I, I did experiments with those for several years and then i expanded into summer squash and then to watermelon which i never thought could grow without water but when i was in israel um i because i traveled all over the world mostly under the experiment experiments where it could grow best and i was in israel working with them there on the Kamut project a little bit and um a friend of mine said well we have watermelon that grows in the desert and i said oh we have a desert, uh, almost a desert, and so I got some seeds and tried it. And uh, by golly, they just they produce just fine. And it, it's the same thing. I was I was giving them three times more space. I plant my watermelons some um, six feet apart and rows that are nine feet apart. So it's a big space, um, fifty-four square feet for each plant. So it's a lot of space, but in that space, they're able to gather enough to make a twenty-five or thirty-pound watermelon. Uh, enough water for that, and that was and it was delicious, and it was a uh, wonderful. Because it, it takes much longer here in Montana to to get it it's near to the since first September before they're getting ripe. But um, at least it can be done. And uh, we now we I can grow tomatoes dry land I grow um, also uh, corn, sweet corn. Of course sweet corn. We don't grow corn in Montana because we don't have enough rain. But sweet corn we can grow. Um, well, another corn too, but it's not done commercially. But uh, let's see. I've tried, so- I've tried some vegetables like beets. Um, I've tried some smaller root crops, and I haven't had as much luck with that. But the bigger plants are able to really um, root down and survive.
0: It's worth noting that dry farm tomatoes are really, um, uh, have a, really well loved by people who have tasted them. They have a rich, concentrated flavor, and they're yeah. um, delicious.
1: I, I plant the same varieties in my garden in, in the dry land. Experiment plot, and it's, it's a big difference in how they've taste. Now some plants, because it, it does concentrate the uh, the flavors and the and the minerals in there. There's not so much water. There's not as watery, but the um, some plants like broccoli I planted, and, and the smell and the taste was so strong. My wife informed me quite strongly to never bring that into the house again, and so that was <laughs> that kind of overdid it, <laughs> because when you concentrate that flavor. Um, it's a little bit more than you want, probably. But for a tomato and for um, melons and that sort of thing, it was just wonderful.
0: Well, we, one other story I think we have time to say a little bit about, because it's so interesting and is a lot about, um, gets into the closed loop system that you've really evolved to thinking how you think about your farm. And that's your, um, your growing fuel, which ended up growing oil which ended up being in this in the university of montana food system and coming i mean you want to say just a little bit about your experiment with that because i think it's a really interesting story for a contemporary farmer
1: well this again uh, started in one direction and ended up in a completely uh, looping around in a big outside loop i didn't expect so i had the idea of growing um fuel uh, for our farm and i started out with camelina which is um Uh, in the mustard family and it, uh, can be grown, but I wanted to, uh, for us very, quite successfully, but I wanted to avoid, um, making biofuel or biodiesel because that's another extra step and you have to use lye and you've got glycerin for bioproducts and you have wastewater and all this stuff. And it's, and for small bastards, it's expensive to test. Uh, to see that the reaction has gone to completion and the fuel is you know, good quality. So I was started uh, working with um, friends of mine in Germany that were uh, working with straight vegetable oil and converting the diesel engines to run on straight vegetable oil, which all you had to do for that is, in most cases, just to preheat it. But you had to use oils that were uh, monounsaturated. They couldn't have a lot of double bonds. They couldn't be polyunsaturated oils to burn in straight vegetable oil. Or the straight a straight uh, diesel fuel or straight vegetable oil for diesel fuel substitution. And so one of the crops that we could grow that was monounsaturated was safflower. And the safflower plants, kind of like a thistle, and we grew that and and that would could work fine. But my one of the guys working for me took a sample of it into the local restaurant and they said, Wow, this makes the best fried chicken we've ever had. Or this makes the best French fries we've ever had. I said, we'll pay you $2 a pound for this. And I said, gosh, $2 a pound. You know, it's about eight pounds in a gallon. That means I'm putting uh, something worth $16 a gallon in my fuel tank, which that didn't make too good a sense. You know, I'm not a great mathematician, but I could do that in my head. And, um, very artisan and, fuel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so now my fuel, um, project, I just set that aside and started, um, raising food, uh, this oil for food. And, uh, then I got to uh, hooked up with the University of Montana in Missoula, and they started using it in all of their um, um, cooking and all their uh, their fry house, their um, uh, cafeterias and everything. So they were getting a fair amount, and they had a, a good amount of, of of used oil there. Can't call it waste oil because if you get into waste business, that's a whole other government-regulated um, uh, area you don't want to get into. But if you're just doing in used oil uh, and you have another purpose for it, well, that's okay. And so I, it dawned on me, well, why, why can't I take this used oil back home, um, take the water out of it, filter it, and, and clean it up, and then use that for my fuel. And I've been working with my friends in Germany. They say, oh, yeah, you can do that. You, this is what you have to do, and you have to have it so clean and whatever. Have, can't have any water in it because diesel doesn't tolerate water. And um, they modified my engine, so they put a, a heat exchanger on the engine. So the oil came out of the a tank uh, on the tractor that was separate than a, a small diesel tank I had to put on the tractor to start the diesel engine and get it warmed up. And once it was warm, the heat exchanger, using the water from the, the cooling, the coolant from the engine, he preheated the, the vessel oil to 160 degrees that reduced the viscosity so that when that oil went into the diesel engine through the injectors, that there's no difference to that in the, in the diesel fuel in, in viscosity and it worked just fine. So you start the engine on diesel, you switch over to um, vegetable oil when it can be pre-warmed. And at the end of the day, you switch back to diesel, fill all the lines of diesel. So in the next morning you can start the engine on diesel. So, we have a system where we we don't have to choose on our farm between food raising food and fuel, which is a big fight in a lot of parts of the country right now, um, because we can do both. We can use the fuel first for food, and then we can use the use what's not used up in the food um, for fuel. And I think that's a really a fun thing um, to do. In university. And again, yeah, and the university is thrilled about being a part of that. We can't really raise enough for the whole country this way, but we can certainly run our farms. We can raise enough fuel, using it first for food, to to run our farms. And that makes a, a, a closed loop for those farms. I think it's a really good idea.
0: Great, really high quality, healthy oil for the University of Montana students and you get your fuel in the end. And Yeah. Huh. It's just a great way to show how you can rethink the problems and come up with really interesting Localized solutions. We are just about out of time, but I'd be loved to hear what is new, what you're working on right now. I know you're possibly going to have a research center at your farm with Rodale and.
1: Yeah, so I've I've um I've downsized my farm for me at least uh, from four thousand to four acres. So we had thirty four hundred acres that we own, and another six hundred we rented. So we're we're farming four thousand acres and. About three years ago or four years ago now, I turned that over to some of my employees, and they're and they're farming it. They formed their own company, and they're farming it. So they're doing a great job, continuing the organic tradition. And on my four acres, I'm trying to raise all my own food. But in the future, I would like to take 640 acres of, out of the middle of our farm and, don't, and create um, an organic research center. Uh, I, we worked with Rodale for a few years to see if we could do um, kind of a a satellite center for them in the in the West, but that didn't we couldn't really find funding or that didn't come together. So I decided to go ahead independently and um, create my own research center, which would be a partner with Rodale rather than being a project with Rodale. And that means we could partner with also um, colleges and universities uh, wherever, especially in Montana, but nearby um, that want to do research in the in the Upper Great Plains, the short grass prairies, so which we are a part of, and that includes um, the Dakotas and Montana, Southern Alberta, and Saskatchewan, so in the Canada also. So we would hopefully have an international clientele and um, be the first one focusing on regenerative organic research and also um, helping people to grow their own food and to learn how to cook with it. And so we'd wanna have a culinary division that would show people how to take um, vegetables out of the garden and put them on their table. And also how to preserve them with all kinds of home processing and canning and pickling and drying and freezing and all that kind of stuff. And we'd also like to have a, um, a health component where we'd have someone, a healthcare professional who would be dealing mostly with chronic disease and, and prescribing not pills from a drugstore, but um, food from our farm to, uh, as a prescription to help uh, solve the problems of chronic disease. So those are kind of the, that's the package I'm looking for in the future. It's kind of a holistic approach to taking uh, the farm from good seed, uh, growing in good soil, which produces um, good food, which produces healthy, healthy people, and then trying to show people all the way along how that can be done.
0: That's a fantastic project. Can't wait to hear how it evolves. And I would encourage everyone to read your book because there's so many great stories that we haven't even touched on about your food food experiments, the whole fruit thing with your daughter. And that's really fun to read. So yeah. I would encourage.
1: Yeah, we've done it. We have an orchard, small orchard. we We keep experimenting with what we could do in the prairies in north central Montana with uh, fruit orchards. And that's another area that just like the dry land vegetables that no one really thinks about as being a possibility here. But there's a lot of things we can do. And that's what I've been looking at.
0: And even people that live in different parts of the world and different ecosystems, you know, it, it's just a very, you're reading your stories, interesting way to learn how to think differently wherever you are.
1: That's, thank you for saying that. I had several um, friends from India um, who said, oh my gosh, we could do things similar to that here. I never really thought of it that way. Uh, from Argentina and said, well, we're losing our small towns too, and this is a good example, maybe some things we could do. So I, I didn't really think about that when I read it. I've been invited to China. Of course, COVID shut all that down, but there was a big conference. They wanted to have me go and talk to uh, about a year and a half ago uh, about revitalization of, of rural um, um, society or rural uh, communities. Um and I never really would have imagined that from China, but they moved so many people off the land into big cities. Now they're, they are they want to go back, um, kind of turn uh, turn that back to revitalizing the rural areas of China. Um, so I've had a lot of fun with that. I, I was, again, before the pandemic in Mongolia, and they're interested in converting their entire food production to organic as a country, which is amazing to me. And they want the help with wheat because... Their latitude is just about the same as ours, and and their rainfall and everything, and their so um, you know I didn't think about that so much because you know think about Mongolia as a weak country they they're not looking to export it but they want it for their own use um, their own production and so they would like help with that and I've been just thrilled to be a part of any of those kinds of projects.
0: Wow, how exciting! Well, thank you for joining us so much, Bob.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, I'm Susan Grelak-Yusum, and this is the New Books Network. I've been speaking with our guest, Bob Quinn, about his new book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.
1: Adios.